Revelation chapter number one, verse number nine, John is writing and he said, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Church, meet Jesus. John did. I want to... Bring us through the word into the presence of the glorified, resurrected, risen, and ruling Son of God, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, the King over every single King, the Lord over every single Lord. He is ruling and reigning not only over the cosmos today, but He is actually superintending your life. He is engaged, He is involved, He is aware, and tonight we're just going to let Him uh, be revealed through the book of Revelation. Father, bless those that listen tonight. Father, I ask you to expand our understanding, get our mind off of the horizontal, lift our gaze from looking down to looking up. Help us leave this place tonight with anticipation that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We've got Easter coming up this weekend. I have obviously been thinking along with a lot of other people um, about the Passion Week, about what Jesus did in the days before he gave his life on Calvary and then the days before the resurrection. And it is often for a lot of us that our faith, almost always it seems to be, especially when we're younger, looks either back into the past or gets fixated in the present. The older you get, the more you start thinking about the future. Uh, most young, young people don't want to hear messages about heaven. You start hitting middle age, you start saying, yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more about it. I'd, but when you're starting to get into those golden years where you've got more years behind you than you do ahead of you, it, that age group says, talk to us about glory. Talk to us about seeing the king. Talk to us about never being sick and never being ill and never being hurt and never being broken, never being afraid again. Talk to us about the culmination of the age. And uh, I think for the next few weeks, we'll get to do that a little bit. 
as we do it, I want us to think on worship and I want us to think on our own place right now. Worship is not a task to be accomplished. Worship is not a pre-programmed, scheduled moment during a calendar week occurring between Sunday morning and Sunday evening with an occasional Wednesday night thrown in. Worship is really the air that we breathe. It's the atmosphere of the Christian. And yet there are so many intrusions, so many distractions, so many things that keep us from being aware of this beautiful thing called worshiping God that we can often end up living earthbound lives to where on the outward, we're really no different from those that aren't followers of Jesus. And so I know you don't want to live like that, and I don't want to live like that, but quite frankly, there was many years in my life, there were many years in my life where I was ignorant about what biblical worship even looked like. And then I got into a denominational pit. Most of us have been in that pit before, but I was taught and instructed and mandate, this is what is worship. Don't ever do that because that's not worship. And so it all became quite confusing to me. It was a little encumbering. It was a little overwhelming. Till one day, Jesus in his grace and his mercy just decided to answer my cries of, help me. And he did. And he set me free from the complexity of worship. And he just lets us enter into his presence, enter into his gates with joy. And so maybe as we look at John tonight, we'll find out some things that will facilitate worship in us. I'm not going to give you a list of what is worship, what is not worship, how you need to do this, that, or the other. I just want to lift up Jesus. And I think when he's lifted up, he'll fulfill his promise to draw all people to him. And in that drawing to him, we'll find ourselves growing in this thing called worship. Let's go to John's testimony here in chapter number one of the book of Revelation. Start in verse number nine with me. And let's look at John and his vexation. That's just a a $3 word to let you know that John was in a really bad spot. He was being vexed. Look, Look at how he describes it. He says, I'm John. I am your brother. He's talking to these seven churches that he's been instructed to write to. He says, I, John, your brother, and I'm a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let's just stop and parse that out for just a moment. John has been already instructed to bring a message to seven churches in Asia Minor. You'll find those churches in chapter two and chapter number three. And John has been told them that he's going to, been told that he's going to bring them the revelation that Jesus is about to give him. And so John is now addressing those churches, but look how he describes this situation here. He's describing the situation, and we're going to talk about worship, so this is important because he's not in an air-conditioned church building. He's not in the Bible Belt. He's not able to come and go as he pleases and worship and sing whatever songs and turn on his MP3 player and have the greatest Bethel song coursing through his veins and stirring his spirit or for the older group, the greatest Gaither song or whatever gets you going. But the point being is, look at where John is. He describes himself as being a partner in tribulation. You see, he was living at the end of the first century. He's the last remaining of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, the original 12. They're all gone. Judas hung himself and the rest of the others, they had been martyred for their faith. And John's an old man. It's probably about the year 95. And for the better part of 25 years, there's been persecution against the church. People are dying for their faith. 
John himself had undergone so much persecution. History or tradition tells us that he was even attempted to be killed by them throwing him in boiling oil, but was miraculously delivered by God. And so when they couldn't kill John, they exiled him to this tiny little island off the southwest coast of Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey. And they said, we'll just put you out there, and you can die out there. We're tired of your preaching. We're tired of your, uh, in their belief system, the Romans would have thought it was some type of witchcraft, this idea of the resurrection. And they said, we're tired of it. Banish him to the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos was not a great place to be. It was rocky and craggy and not a beautiful place at all. And he was just tossed there. He was a criminal against his will, taken away his freedom, set there on this island. It's an island that is smaller than Hilton Head Island, and it is a place that neither you nor I would want to live out our last days as quite elderly people. And John said, I'm your brother, and I know you seven churches. I know you're suffering. You can find out what they were suffering in chapter 2 and 3. He said, but I'm also a partner in your tribulation. I'm going through what you're going through. But he says this, but I'm also with you in the kingdom. I'm part of the kingdom. So in the midst of John being persecuted by Rome, being exiled to the island of Patmos, suffering, having his freedom removed, he still retained his confidence that he is a kingdom, of, he is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He never lost his identity. Pain, suffering, trouble, mistreatment, abandonment, and banishment never caused John to lose his identity as a son of God, a child of God, and a citizen of an enduring kingdom. And that's what he says next. He says, not only the bad and the tribulation and the good, the kingdom, but the in-between, the patient endurance in Jesus. He said, that's me, that's you. Why do I even bother bringing that up? Well, as John is about to describe to us, it's important for all of us to recognize something. John's clearest revelation and the most intense worship he ever experienced occurred during the most difficult time of his life. You see, friends, there is a parallel that I think that big boy and big girl Christians really need to go ahead and embrace. That the depths of our relationship with Jesus are rarely anchored during times of ease. It is almost invariably pressure, trouble, persecution, and we don't experience a lot of that here, but at least in America right now, theoretical persecution. But times where maybe individual persecution from family members, from co-workers, from a culture that is growing more hostile towards us. But in, in those times of distress where we're at our weakest, where we don't have our freedoms, where we can't fix our situation, that is the similar situation where God chose to find an old ancient man named John. And he said, John, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is what I'm about to show you. And that's where John's eyes were opened up. And that probably 85, 90-year-old man, probably over 90 years old, he was given this vision of the rest of the book of Revelation, which was encoded and inscribed, became part of the Word of God. And what John saw in his worst season of life is the very thing that's feeding you and I 2,000 years later. Why do I bother telling you that? Well, friends, I just want to tell you, um, when you're in a season where things are beyond your control, they're not aligned the way you want them. You're hurt, you're struggling, you're tired, you're weary, you're anxious, you're, you're lonely, you're isolated. You may just be in the perfect place for God to declare you a prime candidate for something glorious being revealed to you. The key is this, you've got to remember who you are. John knew who he was. Don't let your circumstances assign your identity. 
You need to go through your circumstances holding on to your identity as a daughter of God or as a son of God, as one who's been bought with the blood of Jesus, as one who God set his favor and love and grace upon and went after you and brought the gospel and pursued you in love and wasn't deterred by your sin and wasn't, wasn't frustrated with your intermittent faith and faithfulness. I mean, good night alive. He's still with us today. A human being in a human power, God would have abandoned me a long time ago if it was based on just me performing. But even in times where we couldn't perform, God doesn't move away. He moves in closely. So he's constantly pursuing, and John was able to retain that as he opened this up. So moving from verse 9 down into verses 10 through 16, here's the vision. This is where it all began. And I don't even have the ability, this is what's so freeing about preaching this chapter, because I don't have the, I'm not going to try to interpret all of this. John didn't try to make sense of most of it, but he described it. And I'm going to really challenge you tonight when your theology, I'm going to challenge you about what you believe God does today and what you don't think God does today. And I'm just going to let you wrestle through it tonight. So I'm kind of going to, I'm going to throw like a theological grenade out there and see where the shrapnel goes. Amen. So let's take a look at it. This is what John says in verse number 10. He opens up and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and, and then he's about to tell us what all he said. Now, before we get to all these other things that John tells us that he saw, let's address this thing about being in the Spirit. Now, the Lord's day is easy. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week, the day of resurrection. It's our Sunday, and that's, that's a no-brainer. So we don't have to spend any time dissecting that. But what in the world does he mean when he said he was in the Spirit? I remember posing this question to a group of brothers a few years ago who were struggling with my propagation of, of theology about the Holy Spirit. And their comfort zone was to say, well, when the Bible speaks of the Spirit, it's really just speaking of what the Word of God reveals. And so basically, their trinity was Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Now listen, I revere my Bible, but the, the, the trinity is not Father, Son, Holy Scriptures, it's Holy Spirit. And, and here's what John says, that I was in the Spirit. Now, we ought to slow down and just say, well, what does that mean? And before you answer, some of you may have a, a clear leaning toward what that might mean, but those of you that knows, understand the general principle of what John is describing, you're also wise enough not to box in what it means to be in the Spirit. John was a Spirit-filled, Holy Ghost-anointed apostle of God, and in the midst of having nobody to minister to, more than likely, his primary ministry being taken away, Yet John was still in perfect unity with the Holy Spirit, still filled with the Holy Spirit. And John would say this, not only was the Holy Spirit filling in me, I was in him. I was in the Spirit. So I'm going to give you the bottom line understanding of this. This is an experience. This is not a theology. This is not a doctrine. What John is describing here cannot be parsed and systematized and put into a, a nice little packaged outline. John didn't even bother doing that. John was experiencing something personally with God. And what's interesting to me is he didn't even try to explain it. In other words, he didn't have to give a preface saying, now I'm about to say something about being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, but I don't want, everybody would have understood what John was saying at that time. It's our generation in the last couple of hundred years that wants to cloud up what God made clear. See, he was in the Spirit. What, what, 
What does that mean? It means that John was so intertwined, so filled, or so baptized in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that in this moment, whatever was going on was distinctly different from the norm of his life. In other words, something was going on in this moment to where John was saying it was an elevated experience. It was different than a normal day. Something was moving within John, around John, through John, that John could later, as he's writing this, saying, I was in the Spirit. So let's now look at what he saw and heard during this experience. First of all, and I'm just going to go through these. They're going to be uh, included in the notes that will be up on the screen. But here's the first thing. Being in the Spirit, John was still able to hear something. He heard a commanding voice like a trumpet. That was the voice of Jesus. He is also then informed later on in verse 17 of the eternality of the one who is speaking. That's where Jesus said, I'm the first and the last. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Jesus was saying, I am the eternal one. He is then commanded to write down what he is going to see in this vision And John is to relay it to the seven churches. That's found in verses 11 and 12. Some imagery is given there, and Jesus tells him, everything I'm about to tell you, I want you to communicate as a direct message to these seven churches. Then he sees him. The Bible says John heard the voice of Jesus first. It was coming at him like a trumpet, like a summons, like a battle call. And when he turned to see him, he saw a a figure that was distinctly different than the Jesus he used to walk with on earth. It's the same person, but it is a distinctly different revelation of who Jesus is. And he is first of all described as being clothed in priestly garments. That's a picture of Jesus as the high priest, the intercessor, the one who is petitioning on behalf of man to the throne of the Father. And so John's first um, indication of what Jesus looks like, he sees him in a high priestly role, in a high priestly robe. He also then describes what he saw Jesus' physical appearance like. He sees Christ with hair which appears white as wool, eyes that look like flaming fire, and feet that appear to have been bronzed as in a furnace. Now, just stop for a minute. Friends, this happened. This was John's in-the-spirit experience. This was God Almighty pulling back the curtain on a totally different dimension than what was going on on the Isle of Patmos, and he was giving John spiritual, maybe even physical eyes to see. Whatever was going on, John had a consciousness and an awareness, but it was an otherworldly experience, and it was designed by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to tell you something. We have to come to the place in our journey with Jesus where we don't just kind of give a technical sign-off that God can do supernatural things, but that we have to look at the Bible that is the foundation of our faith. The Word of God frames up what we believe, and we have to say God gives vision and revelation from Genesis, excuse me, from, yeah, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. God is constantly opening people up to the other dimension, a heavenly dimension, the, the kingdom of heaven. 
he's, he's calling people and showing people and giving them eyes to see and ears to hear that there's an entirely different dimension than your Monday through Friday, Metro Atlanta, sitting in traffic, changing diapers, changing whatever, doing whatever we do in the mundane. There's an entirely different realm. And brothers and sisters, here's the thing that I, I think that I've become more and more passionate about over the last 10 years. Lord, if you were giving that to everyday, ordinary Christians like you were in Scripture, and if you, if you really meant it when you said you are the Lord and you do not change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And Lord, if I give lip service to believing in prophetic gifts and supernatural occurrences and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and signs, wonders, and visions, Lord, I don't want to preach about it anymore if I can't experience it, if I can't see it. Friends, how many of us really believe that God is willing and able to pull back the curtain and show you what's really going on. You see, we are so entrenched in an earthbound vision for life. We, 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 we are concerned more about retirement and our 401k, if you've got one, or our savings, or our portfolio, or you know, the senior adult community we want to live in one day. We are so fixated on earthbound stuff, and meanwhile, there's this whole other realm of things going on, and I believe that Jesus is very willing to bring revelation to us, but he's not finding hungry candidates. You see, John had no distractions. He saw Jesus very different than what Jesus looked like when John followed him on earth. Jesus, in this vision, had white woolly hair. And that speaks of ancient of days, that title from the Old Testament, and the wisdom of the ages being on Jesus. Eyes that appeared like fire, and that speaks of perfect pinpoint discernment and judicial ability. It means God sees everything. His eyes run to and fro about the earth. He sees everything. And then it says those feet, which looked like they had been bronzed in a furnace. And it speaks of just the strength and the steadfastness and the standing ability of Jesus Christ. Now, what would that have communicated to John whose horizontal life had been taken away from him? He was physically alive, but he had no outlet. I think what it speaks of is even in that vision, if I'm John and I'm exiled on the island of Patmos and I've been mistreated and I've been banished to this island, when I see Jesus and I see on his head the white woolly hair, I'm thinking he's the ancient of days. He knows what he's doing. He's all wise. And when I see his eyes flaming like fire, I recognize that he hasn't missed a thing that he's seen everything I have gone through, he's seeing everything I am going through, and he's about to tell me what he sees is about to come. And so I trust his discernment. And then when I see his feet like that burning, uh, they've been bronzed in fire, I, I think of that ability that he went through the fires of hell. He endured, he came out the other side, and he's not in some tomb somewhere anymore, but he is the resurrected son of God who bears in his body the marks of his sacrifice, and even his feet, seemed to indicate that he went through the fires of judgment for me. So on the back end of all of that, I say to myself, this is my Messiah, this is my Savior, this is my King, this is my God. He's strong, he's wise, he's able to withstand, and he's with me. He's actually coming to me here. Amen. Friends, that is what we've got to do when we look at things like this. We don't need to get caught up in you know, this symbol and this symbol and this symbol. That's fine, that's, that, that's good 
It's an interesting study. But ultimately, don't get lost in the details and miss the fact that Jesus is simply saying to John, I'm coming to you. I'm not done with you yet. And he is an old, old dude. Friends, I want to tell you something. If if you read your Bible carefully, you're going to find out God loves to give a last-minute assignment to old people. You will find that out. Say, I don't believe that, Jeff. Really? Have a conversation with Abraham and Moses. They'll straighten you out. Have a conversation with John the Beloved. They'll straighten you out. Ask Sarah. Ask Abraham's lovely lady, Sarah. And she'll say, oh, no, God does his best work. And I was 90 when God gave me my first child. Isn't that incredible? So that's a segue there, but maybe it'll land somewhere tonight. So moving on in these notes, God help the person who's running the PowerPoint tonight. Hang with me, Elena. Here we go. He hears Christ speaking with a thunderous voice as roaring water. So John hears power in the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. He notes that Christ is holding seven stars in his hand. And those stars are later revealed as the seven messengers to the seven churches. And so that's just a, it's an incredibly supernatural scene. But what that says is John learns that those stars are literally the leaders of seven churches that John's about to speak to. Jesus is saying, I've got my church in my hands. I haven't let go of her. I haven't lost her. I not only am there as protector, but I'm there as the sovereign Lord that literally I lead them, I guide them, I release them, I keep them. Just an awesome thing to think about, friends, that, listen, the bride of Christ, the church of the living God, we're in his hands, even when we don't know what his hands are doing. We're there. And if we can, if we can receive that revelation that's all throughout Scripture that Jesus, I mean, he's, he's going to tell us in a minute that, that he's coming again. He's coming back here again. He's not dropped us. He's not set us aside. He's not preoccupied with something else. That the very thing that Jesus Christ left uh, heaven for in the first place was to come down and pay the price to secure a bride for himself for all of eternity. And don't think for a second that having done everything that he had to do to, to, to win his bride and secure his bride, don't think for a second that now on the back end he would ever turn her loose. No, friends. He's paid the ultimate price for us. He's got us in his hand. He knows what he's doing, and he's not forgotten about any of us. So he goes on. John says that he describes, this is wild, he describes Christ as having a sharp, double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. Are you visual? Are you a visual person? I'm a visual person, and I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't, because it seems, it seems weird. It, if we slipped off into irreverence, it could seem a little comical, but it's, ultimately it's just kind of frightening. I, I'm more comfortable with peaceful, happy, let the little children come into my lap, Jesus. I, I don't know what to do all the time with a double-edged sword shooting out of his mouth, Jesus. I mean, that's intense, and yet it was part of the vision. So John is seeing all this stuff, and he's hearing all this stuff, and ultimately he beholds Christ radiating the brilliant light of his own unveiled glory. That's verse number 16. That ultimately, John, the vision moves from the high priest in the robe with the woolly hair and the, and the, uh, the eyes like fire and the sword coming out of his mouth and all of this incredibly, uh, just amazing, astounding imagery. But ultimately, all of it's engulfed. Ultimately, Jesus reveals his very nature to John in the vision. And what is that nature? Perfect light, 
perfect light radiating glory that is brighter than the sun at its fullest, according to the word of God. And so what that says, and by the way, you're going to find through the book of Revelation that the the sun is not even needed anymore because the glory of the lamb is the light of heaven. That Jesus's glory is the thing that illuminates heaven wherever uh, you are in that beautiful paradise to come. So this is, this is strange stuff. It, it, it almost seems impractical, doesn't it? This is, um, it's otherworldly. It's inexplicable. We don't know what to do with it. And so if we're not careful, we'll just be brushing on past it quickly. Why, why would I even bother preaching any of this? Why, what is the point in bringing this kind of stuff into a a topical series. This is what I want to share with us. I believe that one of the great needs in the church today is for us to be delivered. And I I use that word intentionally. To be delivered. And I'm going to use an old old word here. We need to be delivered from our worldliness. From being embedded in in a world that the Word of God says is going to be uncreated and then recreated. That we've got to pull up our our life's tent stakes out of the terra firma. That we've got to begin to really intentionally train ourselves to think beyond our 95 to 100 years on planet Earth and recognize that that's a vapor It's a mist that fades away that we are going to be living in the other realm, the other dimension, the, the, the full expression of God's kingdom. That's where we're going to be forever. And if we don't start recognizing, that's one of the reasons why I want to preach this is if nothing else to say, hey, don't forget there's a completely other dimension, a completely other realm that this is not it. And yet we live in such a pressure cooker. I mean, we just live in a pressure cooker. We're bombarded. Our minds, our ears, our eyes, our hearts, our emotions, they're bombarded with all that is temporary. And yet it is projected on us as if it wasn't temporary, but as if it were permanent. What I'm describing to you is what's permanent. And it's a mind-blowing world that we can't even understand. Um, I don't know if any of you ever watched like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or even, even some of the sci-fi stuff, Star Trek and all that, where you see these creatures and you see these, these planets and you see these realms and you, you see these characters and it's, we call it fantasy. We call it fantasy. And the reality is, I'm, I'm going to risk it here. You may never come back to Newbridge after I say this, but I'm going to risk I actually think some of that stuff is closer to the eternal kingdom than what we're living in. Because when I look at the book of Revelation, it it sometimes reads more like H.G. Wells than it does, um, you know, the inspired scripture. You got creatures, you got beings, you got locusts, you've got demons, you've got angels, you've got meteors, you've got water turning into blood, you've got this stuff. I mean, you've got the Son of God with a sword coming out of his mouth. The reason why I want us to go through this is because I want to break the grip that this temporary world holds over us. I want to harness the imagery that we see here in the book of Revelation, and I'm just praying the Holy Spirit will whisper to you, there's more to come. This isn't it. Enjoy life down here. 
But don't believe the lie that this is it because this is literally a springboard into the real life. You know, death is nothing but a doorway. Death is a doorway that leads us out of limitation into full capacity understanding of who God is and full experience of who he is. And yet we try to hold on to this life and we so fear that doorway of death. Oh, we'll do anything to to keep from having to approach that doorway of death. But it's actually that doorway of death that takes us into the fullness of life that Jesus has bought for us. By the way, uh, we all have a date with dust. You're not going to miss it. It's not going to come too early. It's not going to linger too long. God is sovereign. He knew your birthday. He knows your expiration date. So don't live in fear of it. Brothers and sisters, prepare for that transition through it. But don't live in fear of it. We see all throughout Scripture, by the way. Let me get back to the message here and I'll wrap up. But all throughout Scripture, you're going to find that it's not exactly um, infrequently that you find people having visions and experiences like this. Yeah, I just went through just going chronologically and just put about five or six down. Abraham had a vision where God knocked him out, and while Abraham is knocked out, God makes what is called the Abrahamic covenant with him. While Abraham is knocked out completely, yet he's communicating with God in an unconscious state that can be described described as nothing less than a vision, an open vision that God gives him. Jacob, the the son of uh, the grandson of, of Abraham, also had a vision. He had a vision of of a ladder going up to heaven. He had other visions that God gave him, supernatural experiences that can't be quantified or explained or described. And these were just old Hebrew guys. You got Isaiah the prophet and Ezekiel the prophet and Daniel. All of these guys had experiences where they met uh, either God himself or an angelic being from heaven, and it completely knocked them out. Knocked, I mean, literally knocked them out. And while they were out, God is communicating and downloading vision and symbols and dreams to them. And so when we see this, and by the way, it's not just the Old Testament. You've got Peter, you know, Peter sitting on the roof. And Peter's own words were, yeah, I don't know what happened. I was up there, I was getting really hungry, and I fell into a trance. And it was in that trance that God gave Peter the vision that allowed people like me and you, Gentiles, to enter into the kingdom of God. When did it happen? It didn't happen through a Bible study. It happened through a supernatural ambush and a vision on a rooftop 2,000 years ago in Palestine. And so then you got Paul. I mean, Paul's conversion came via a, a, a Holy Ghost ambush. That's actually, it was the son of God. Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, is riding to Damascus trying to kill himself some Christians. And Jesus says, enough of that, and appears to him in that same glorious, brighter than the noonday sun glory, knocks Paul off his donkey, knocks Saul off his donkey. And Saul's first question is, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. And Saul's next statement was, what would you have me to do? And he became the greatest champion of the gospel that ever walked planet earth but how did it begin it began through a vision a supernatural vision so paul and peter and here we have john you know in in his last waning days on earth and god's saying i got something i want to show you so i'm just going to ask you a question i I don't you don't you can't answer it tonight really but I, i just hope some of you will get hungry you know Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 says at the end of the age, God's going to be pouring out his spirit. That's already begun. 
But as, the, as we get closer and closer to the end of the age, what you need to expect are two things, an uptick in the activity of hell. Hell will be coming with a, a more intense, ferocious attack against all things God. Why? Because hell has a stopwatch. It's aware. The, the, the demons of hell and Satan himself, they know that their time is limited. And so as the end of the age progresses, they are going to fight with greater and graver, uh, fu- uh, with greater, and greater fury. But you also need to expect the second thing. God's not going to stand by and watch an uptick from the activity of hell and God just stand there and not do anything. You should expect an uptick in the activity of God, the activity of the kingdom, the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so as we approach the back end of the age where Joel 2, and it's repeated in Acts chapter 2, that that, that we're going to see visions and dream dreams and the Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh and men and women and young and old and and, and, and even the social classes where it talks about free people, the the children and then the servants. And there's going to be an outpouring. And the end result of that is there's going to be a prophetic awakening. There's going to be prophecy being given. It's going to be coming from people you'd never think. I mean, I I will guarantee you this. If Jesus does not come back in the next five years, some of the student group that was sitting out here tonight are going to be raised up as valid prophets in this generation speaking the truth to us. God will be getting our attention through the mouth of the unlearned because he can trust them because they won't overcomplicate everything. But my thing is this. Why not you? Why not me? Why in the world would we think that he just buy? I think he'll give anybody that he can trust with stewarding his revelation, his illumination, his understanding, his prophetic vision. I think that he is more than willing to give it. Why? Because it all traces back to him. It's for his glory. And so if you and I will bust out of our low expectations and say, well, John was just an old guy on, a, on an island. Daniel was an orphaned exile in a faraway land. And Abraham grew up in a pagan's household and didn't have any relationship with God. And God went after him. And, and you know, Ezekiel, Ezekiel was about the most religious one of them all. And, and so God can find them in the church. He can find them outside of the church. The point being is this. I think God rewards hunger. So what are we hungry for? As this vision unfolds and I look at it and I'm like, man... I ain't ever seen any of this. And it, I, it's probably not entirely holy, but there's, there's, I'll just go ahead and say there, it's almost a jealousy. I'm like, Lord, if that stuff is happening, I want to see you. I, I want my eyes opened. I want the, 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 the uh, curtain pulled back. I, I want to see what you're doing. You say, Jeff, that, that's just presumptuous. Do you remember Elijah or Elisha and his servant? And Elisha's in the household and the enemy is encamped around about where they are and the servant goes outside and says, Oh no, master, what are we going to do? And Elisha's just chilling. And he just says, Hold on a minute, boy. Let me, let me pray. Father, open his eyes that he can see what's up. And so the servant pops his head back out the door and he sees the army that's surrounding them being surrounded by God's army. And my point is this. One moment he couldn't see it, the next moment he could. And so if you and I are living in years where we don't see any of this stuff, we don't experience any of this stuff, I just want you to know I'm praying that all of us will see it. 
But there's got to come a point where we open our eyes by faith and say, God, I believe you'll show it if I keep asking you to show it. And in that, in that approach to him, and it's not so we can go out and say, man, let me tell you what I saw, because ultimately what we see is objective. We want to see him. We want to see his glory. We want to hear his plan. We want to see the realm in which he is operating so we can invite those that know nothing about him to go deeper into him. Not so we can sign up in the, the weird charismatic club and we can say, I got my card-carrying member of the wacko charismatic club. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about honoring God because let me tell you, what John saw there was mysterious, it was weird, it was supernatural, but it was holy. It was holy. So let me finish up here. Those are famous last words of a preacher, but I'm going to try. Here we go. So the vision from John, or to John, the vexation that John was living in, but here is John and his veneration. Here's the worship. To, when we talk about veneration, it just means to in awe to honor someone, to, to, to say, oh, you are great, highly esteemed, and in this case of worship, you are a, a glorious God. And so this is what it looks like. So watch this. This is his worship. Up to this point, it's been primarily vision, but look at his response. The response to all of this is worship. John became an, became an overwhelmed worshiper. Look at this. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. This is incredible. John was invited into the vision. John was ambushed with the vision by God. The vision was coming from God to John, but John, when it began, when he heard, when he saw, when the glory of Jesus hit him like the, the shining sun, John said, the only thing I could do was get low. I actually believe it, was a, it wasn't even an intentional response. I believe that John dropped under the glory of Jesus. Glory, both in the Old Testament and the New, they come from two different words, kavod in the Old and doxa in the New, but it implies the weight of the fullness of God. So the heaviness, I'm going to tell you this, this is, this is something that We'll work through it at a different time. I actually wrote a position paper on it because we had a couple of people fall out in the service and it, it scared a lot of people from, from the Baptist side of our church. I'm like, what was that? And I'm not going to say that every time that happens, that's, that's the glory of God hitting somebody. I believe sometimes it is. But the fact of the matter is, is in the Bible, you find that when people would enter into the manifest presence of God, the doxa, the kavod, the weight was so intense that they couldn't stand. You've got the priest in the temple that couldn't even do their job that day when the glory cloud moved into the temple because the glory of God was so thick, the priests were out. And I've already mentioned some of the other ones. Abraham went out. Jacob went out. By the way, if you really want to stretch things maybe just a little, when, when God wanted to bring a woman into the world, he went and saw Adam, and Adam went out in a deep sleep. And God brought a rib out of him, fashioned Eve, and when Adam woke up, he said, yeah! <laughs> See, I've been looking at donkeys all day long, man. Gave them Eve. Hallelujah. Y'all lighten up a little bit. Bunch of Puritans, come on. My point being is this, although I am hungry to see deeper manifestations of God, of Christ, deeper workings of the Holy Spirit, I want to tell you something, when those things occur, 
If it's really God, nobody's casual about it. You're not flippant when the presence of God fills a place or fills you. It's not just, hey, I'm hanging with JC, my homeboy. That kind of rot. I don't like that stuff, man. And when people get flippant and cavalier with the Son of God and the Holy Spirit and God the Father, I'm going to tell you something. When he really moves into a place, nobody will be on their feet. And we haven't seen that. We haven't seen it. There are historical revivals where there ain't a soul standing up. I'm talking about the awakening, the second great awakening, where, where the Holy Spirit moves into a service, a time together, and everybody's laid out. <laughs> you talk about messing up a denomination. Good night. You know, I, I often wonder if, if we don't experience this type of fullness, this type of vision, this type of manifestation because God in his infinite wisdom knows that we just can't handle it. And so it is not an unwillingness of God, but I'm going to tell you, Jesus taught something. It's a kingdom principle. Jesus taught his disciples, don't cast your pearls before the swine. You know what that is? That's a principle that says, don't just casually toss out your best among those that aren't ready for it or worthy of it. And I believe Jesus taught that, and I believe he practices that. And so the best that Jesus has to offer, sometimes we don't experience it, not because he thinks we're swine, but that principle is a kingdom principle. In other words, I can't give you what you think you want because you won't know what to do with it yet. So get low and humble yourself and cry out unto me. And when you're ready, I will meet you there. And when John experienced this, he fell out. John also experienced a personal touch in worship. John fell at his feet, though dead. And I love this, it's so tender. But he laid his right hand on me. That this one who was radiating glory, this one who had eyes like fire, this one who had the white woolly hair, then the bronze feet, and the priest robe, and the golden sash, and the sword coming out of his mouth, and the radiating glory, just, and John has fallen out at his feet, still conscious, but fallen out, and, and Jesus just lays his right hand on John, a personal touch. When I, when, when I come into any worship setting, whether private or um, gathered, there's an aspect that says this, Lord, I want to experience you. I, I can read about him all the time, but there are certain moments where literally I want to close my Bible. Don't, don't label me a heretic. I want to close my Bible and say, Lord, I've read all the words. Now I want you. Your book is awesome, Lord. Now I want you. I want to experience you. But do you know what this says? This says that there's a part of Jesus, at least in this uh, vision with John, that Jesus wants to experience us. Jesus, it's, uh, it's, why wouldn't we want to experience him? He's God. But Jesus wants to connect with us. He touched John because he loved him, because he cared about this man going through a terrible situation in his older years. He had watched John suffer. He had watched John endure. He had watched John misrepresented, mistreated, and banished. And in that moment, for the first time in probably 50 to 60 years, John, the one who once laid his head on the chest of Jesus, for the first time in 60 years, Jesus made physical contact with John as if to say, I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere. You've been wanting to experience me. John, it's just good to touch you again. 
Now, friends, I don't know if you're there yet and you can receive that, but I want to tell you something without flattering anybody in this room. You are very, very important to him and you're not lost in the masses. He loves the church. He loves the church. He loves the church. He loves his bride. He loves the body, but he loves every single individual. And that means you. He loves you with an intensity of love and an inability to measure the love that he has for you. He loves you and he wants close contact with you represented there by the physical touch to John. And look at the words he said to John. He even heard soul instruction. All of this is during worship. He's overwhelmed. He receives a personal touch, and he gets soul instruction or instruction to his heart. Jesus just says, John, don't be afraid. Fear not. Why did Jesus say that? I have to believe because it was John's most pressing need in that moment. It could have been the fact that John was overwhelmed, even crossing the line from awe and reverence into an unholy, unhealthy fear of Jesus. But I actually don't think that's what he was talking about. I actually think Jesus is addressing John and the state of affairs he was in on the island. I think the touch was a touch of reassurance, a touch to say, John, I am here and you don't have anything to be afraid of. Everything about the revelation of Jesus in verses 10 through 16 shows Jesus' faithfulness, his strength, his wisdom, and his, um, uh, his discernment, his knowledge. And it's as if to communicate to John, who had no answers about his situation, he had no human hope, Jesus just does what Jesus does. An individual reach and touch in two words, fear not. I think that those are some of the most favorite words that the Son of God says to any of us. And we need them a lot, don't we? Don't be afraid, child. I, I sometimes, I think the Lord's okay with this. I, I sometimes picture him speaking to me in my generation's language. I just hear him say sometimes, Jeff, I got this. I got you, man. I got, hey, don't be afraid tomorrow. You were afraid today. That's okay. I, I had you today. Hey, Let's do tomorrow together, and how about don't bring your fear? How about you just walk with me? That's the way I hear him talk sometimes. Don't be afraid. So the very last thing, and that, that's a promise. I'm out of verses. John received big-picture clarity during worship. This is the biggest statement that Jesus made, and I didn't leave enough time for it, but look at what Jesus says. John, fear not, and then he says, remember who I am. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. And he says this, I died. I, I died. Life died. God died. Yeah, that, we can say that. Jesus Christ, God the Son, died. Jesus said, John, yes, I died. But then he says, hey, look, behold, look at this, John. I'll never die again. I am alive forevermore. And John, I want you to know something. I have the keys to death and hell or death and Hades. What is all that about? He's just letting John be encouraged by saying, John, do you, do you know who you're walking with? John, it's been a while. Do you, know, do you know who I am? Well, in case you've forgotten, let me tell you who I am. I was there before time was there. John, I will be there when time is no more. I'm the beginning and the end. He goes on to talk about Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. And he says, John... I died. What does that say? Immediately, John, who was the only disciple at the cross, remember that. 
His mind goes back some 60-something years, and he sees the Son of God stretched out on the cross. It could have felt like a distant memory, and yet Jesus takes John the ancient all the way back to when John was a young man, and John's standing there with the mother of Jesus, whom he took care of for about 30 years, history tells us. John took care of Mary for about 30 years, and he sees Jesus splayed there on the cross, And he remembers what Jesus said. Jesus pronounced forgiveness over his enemies. Jesus knew that he was forsaken by the Father so that John would never have to worry about being forsaken. Let me tell you something. When you're mistreated, when you're banished, when you're in solitude, when you're exiled, when you're persecuted, you feel forsaken. And John, in those two words, John, I died. John immediately says, yeah. He was forsaken, and I never can be. And then he adds this, John, yes, I died, but I'm alive right now, and I will always be alive. And he lets John know in those statements, John, don't be afraid of whether or not you die on Patmos. Don't be afraid about this vapor of a life coming to an end. John, I'm alive forevermore, and you belong to me, so you're going to live forever. And then he says this, and I love this, and I'll just stop here. I'll actually move away from the notes. He says, John, I know it looks like um, Nero and Domitian and these emperors and these Caesars. I know it looks like they're running the show right now, but I want to tell you something, John. I want you to know something right here. I got the keys. I got the keys, man. Keys in Scripture are symbolic of authority. And Jesus says, I'm the one holding the keys. I'm the one with authority. And John, I have such authority that I determine who lives with me. And in the end, I will determine and I will, with my authority, open up the gates of hell and I will banish those that reject me to that place. What is it? It's justice. Friends, you can try to get around it all you want. I don't want to bust the sweet vibe that's in here, but I'm going to tell you something. God's not done doing what he came to do until justice is served. And so John knows in that moment that his living Savior is going to balance the scales. What Jesus said to John, he says to you, leave here this day and know this. You may not see justice in this lifetime. There's a lot of injustice in this world, a lot of it. And I don't know that we're going to see all the scales balanced in our lifetime, but I'm going to promise you something. You keep your heart fixated on Jesus, and there will come a day where you will be fully vindicated. You will be completely exonerated. Every false word, every accusation, every abuse, every abandonment, every misdeed done to you by those that rejected you and rejected Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to know I've got the keys. I've got the authority. Do not take vengeance into your hands. It belongs to me and I'll settle it. Why is that important? Because it frees me and you up not to live as victims, not to live believing that we are going to be perpetually in victimhood. Why? Because we walk with the living Son of God. He has us in His hands, and He's never going to turn loose of us.